Hey everyone, this is Nick and welcome back to your Linux and open source news podcast. And this week we have a lot to talk about because we have one big announcement from Nextcloud which has just become a very, very powerful solution in just one fell swoop. We have Musk announcing that Twitter will open source their algorithm at the end of this month, at the end of March. And we have Wayland screen sharing completely fixed thanks to a small new tool that lets you share your screen or your applications using X Wayland, like for example Discord, which didn't work properly before. And we also have Framework announcing a new 16-inch laptop with upgradable and replaceable GPUs. We have GNOME 44 being released, we have AMD FSR 3, and a lot more. So, as usual, the usual reminder, all the links I use to make this podcast are in the description. If you want to learn more about a specific topic, you'll find the articles there. And as always, this podcast is user-funded for now, and if you want to keep it without ads and without sponsors, you also have links to support the show in the show notes. So, now, let's get started. So let's begin with Nextcloud. And they just had an event in uh, in Berlin, in Germany, uh, which I was invited to. Uh, they even offered to pay uh, for me to go there, but I just could not make time uh, to, to, to go there. I know Tech Hut from the Tech Hut YouTube channel uh, went there and he has a dedicated video on that event as well. You can also just watch a live stream of what they announced. But let's go over what they said. So they just released Nextcloud Hub 4. And its main focus is, as seems mandatory these days, uh, it's on AI. And they implemented what they call intelligent features. Uh, basically, they implemented AI in some sort of powerful context menus in most of their applications to let you automatically make use of AI tools inside of your workflow. Instead of having dedicated AI tools that you have to access separately, they integrated them directly inside of their apps, which looks absolutely great in terms of how it works. Uh, this little context menu, uh, I think they call it the smart picker. Uh, basically, it lets you pick specific features, including AI-related ones. Uh, so this includes, for example, text-to-speech using Whisper. Uh, so you can just type text using your voice. Uh, you can also generate images from where you are, from the application you're using, either using DALI 2 or Stable Diffusion, if you run that one on-premises. They also included ChatGPT3 to generate new text inside of documents or inside the various Office suites they support, at least Nextcloud Office, which is based on Collabora. And this smart picker also has a bunch of various functionalities that are not AI-related, like letting you share tasks, uh, letting you share Nextcloud tables, uh, a map location, some collectives pages, videos from Peertube, Mastodon accounts, or even it will even let you translate using Nextcloud Translate, which is a new tool Nextcloud has uh, based on DeepL. Uh, they also introduced a brand new application called Tables, which is an alternative to what SharePoint uh, let you do before. Basically, it lets you build small applications with data structures uh, without any development or any code. You just take the data you want from various apps and you just build a model to display it and to access it. And it looks actually really, really good. It's 
it seems to be at the at the middle point between something like like Microsoft Access, so you have that kind of database that already exists inside of your already existing Nextcloud applications, uh, but you also have that graphical designer to create something visual around it. It looks really cool, and I am definitely going to give it a shot just to see what you can do with it, because it 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 is a big big thing. Uh, it basically lets you create super interesting dashboards or data visualization tools that you can share with a team or just use for yourselves. It makes Nextcloud really way more powerful. Now, they also added the ability to rename file versions in the Nextcloud Files app, which is going to be way easier because if you want to save one of these versions, it can be hard to know which one it is. So maybe if you have a coworker that edited something, maybe you want to keep your older version with your name on it, now you can do that, and it's pretty cool. Uh, Nextcloud Talk now lets you create what they call breakout rooms, which is basically you have a big giant meeting room where you're talking with your colleagues, uh, either in video, in video chat or, or using text. But now you can create small offshoots of these rooms to address maybe one specific coworker, or if you're, for example, giving a formation, if you're, if you're educating people, you can also just have a one-on-one -on -one session while others work on a specific exercise or something. So it's pretty interesting as well. And you can also now record your Nextcloud Talks uh, calls directly from the Nextcloud Talk application, which is something that was missing and it's good to be uh, that it's there. Now the Mail app also got support for shared mailboxes and for SMIME types. Plus it has new text templates as well. Nextcloud Office now supports end-to-end -end encryption, which is cool. So you can basically upload a file to an end-to-end -end encrypted folder and you can share end-to-end -end encrypted documents from Nextcloud Office as well, which is a big plus for security. The text editor now lets you track collaborative editing with multiple cursors in real time, just like what you would find on, for example, Google Docs. And they also improve performance a lot across the whole of Nextcloud, specifically for Nextcloud Talk as well, with reduced loading times, reduced server load, and reduced notifications delay, and they say it's up to 99% faster. So that's that's pretty huge. And of course, depending on how you installed your own Nextcloud server, you might not get the update right away. For example, mine is installed using Snap, and they generally tend to wait for the next point release to actually give you the update if nothing goes wrong. So you have to wait generally about a month before you get it. I know other distribution methods are a bit faster, like for example, why you know host, or you can just, if you install it manually, technically the auto updater should let you update it immediately and benefit from all these features, which is pretty cool. Now it is a huge update. I really want to play around with the tables app to see what I can create. And I also want to give a shot to the AI features to see how well they're integrated. What's weird about these AI features is that they made a whole show during their presentation talking about how they wanted to do ethical AI and they want to make sure that everything works for the benefit of others, blah, blah. But they're using ChatGPT and DALI and, and Midjourney, well, Stable Diffusion. It's like they're not ethical at all. They, they have been proven to not give a crap about copyright, about using data that they don't own, about open source, they don't care. So it doesn't feel super ethical in terms of the tools that they let you use. 
And I'm gonna read up more on this to see how well they justify this because I don't see what's ethical about it at all. Like, they're using the same tools as everyone else that have been heavily discussed as being really unethical up until now. Now, if you remember back when Elon Musk said he wanted to buy Twitter, he also said that he wanted to make it, let's say, as open source as possible. At least he wanted to open source the algorithm. And up until now, uh, this has not materialized. Uh, it, it actually looked like they were going the opposite route of that, with them shutting down access to their API, killing the whole Twitter-based ecosystem of alternative clients, of useful bots uh, that made use of that API. They said they wanted to make this API accessible for a fee, which I can understand, but it still hasn't materialized either, so for now it looked like they wanted to be closed down, instead of more open. But it looks like this might change really soon, because Elon Musk tweeted that all the code used to recommend tweets to the users will be opened uh, on March 31st. And he also said prepare to be disappointed to someone asking him to open source Twitter, which could mean that either the code is not great, or that they will just open a very small part of that algorithm or that it just doesn't hide anything weird and that there's like everybody is going to be disappointed because basically there's nothing to look at. It's just here are the recommended tweets because they were popular in terms of likes or retweets and that's it. But we don't really know much about this open sourcing. We know it, ha it, it is supposed to happen on March 31st, although Elon Musk has announced stuff before that has been delayed again and again and again and hasn't materialized. For example, this the, the, the ability to pay to access the Twitter API and the Twitter blue thing that has been like turned on, then off, then on again, then in certain countries, then everywhere. You don't really know if it's trustworthy in terms of information, basically. But we also don't know what license uh, this code will be published under. We don't know where it will be accessible, GitHub or something else. We don't know the rights users will have to reuse that algorithm, share it, modify it. And we also don't know if they will allow uh, user contributions to it, or if it's just, hey, here it is, you can look at the code, it's open, but you cannot really do anything about it. Basically, we don't know if it's just basic open source or if it's gonna be like something closer to free software. It's still an interesting move because yes, it did look like Twitter was going to go really closed source and that promise of open sourcing Twitter's algorithm was completely forgotten for the past, what, six months or something? Uh, and so it's good to see that yes, it is going to be open source. It will probably calm down uh, a lot of people that think they were silenced or censored by this algorithm or whatever, because I can pretty much assure you, even though I have never touched that algorithm or worked at Twitter, I can pretty much assure you that recommended tweets are probably exclusively based on the number of likes and retweets, and that's it. Like, it's going to be a measure of popularity and nothing more, because that's the only thing that makes sense in terms of recommended tweets. The All this censorship thing is probably handled in a block list outside of the algorithm. It's like, the algorithm will recommend tweets based on their popularity if the account hasn't been shadow bound, basically. I, I can assure you it's gonna be something like that. So there's gonna be nothing to see there, but it's still interesting to know that maybe that promise will be like, acted upon. It's nice.
Now, let's talk Wayland. Uh, one of the biggest hurdles uh, of a lot of users on Wayland might soon disappear or has already disappeared. And that's screen sharing. If you used Wayland and something like Discord, for example, uh, you know that sharing your Discord window or your Discord screen is just not working or sharing screen from Discord basically just does not work uh, because Discord uses Electron, which is still using X Wayland, at least on the Electron version Discord uses, which means that it is not native Wayland. And so it doesn't go through the screen sharing window sharing portal. And so it basically does not work. You cannot share your screen using Discord on Wayland. Well, this is now fixed because a group of developers are tackling this issue with a new project called X Wayland Video Bridge. Now, what this tool does is basically just make X Wayland windows visible in the window picker for screen sharing, just like if they were native Wayland applications. It is just as secure as screen sharing under Wayland using the portals and it's getting data through Pipewire. So it's, it, it seems to be very, very simple in terms of architecture. Now, of course, it, it just cannot make x.org or x11 secure, which means that if you start sharing your screen, even using this tool, even on Wayland, any other x.org, x11 or x Wayland application will be able to snoop on that content and view your screen as well. There's no way to bypass that really. It's how x.org was designed and xWayland is basically just an X server running on top of Wayland. So yeah, it's not 100% secure, but it's still using the basic Wayland security model. So other apps running natively under Wayland won't be able to snoop on your key presses and on your screen sharing. Performance is apparently excellent. Uh, they're saying there's no latency, there's no extra CPU usage either. And the good news is you can already run it right now. The bridge is available as a flat pack only for now, which is not yet on FlatHub. You, you have to download it, download the flat pack ref file uh, from their GitHub repo, uh, because it depends on a newer library that hasn't been released yet. And so you cannot install that library. So you cannot install that tool in any other way than flat pack, because well, flat pack allows you to bundle the library directly in. You will need to run the bridge in the background. It's not integrated inside of Wayland or anything. It's a third party tool that you run in the background through a simple command line. You can even set it to auto start so you can set it and forget it. And everything should work well after that. It's still in alpha. It's still unclear if it will remain a separate tool or if it will be part of a desktop environment or a distro in the future. Apparently the developers are pushing for it to be included natively by uh, Plasma 6. Maybe Gnome will pick it up as well. But for now, you can at least install it yourself and basically restore all the screen sharing functionality from apps that haven't been updated uh, to run well under Wayland, but it's gonna work exactly like if they did, which is really cool. So if your only complaint with Wayland was screen sharing, well, it's solved now. So yeah, you can just try it out for yourself and, uh, and don't hesitate to let me know if it works well or not. Uh, I basically never use any screen sharing features on my computers. So I didn't really test it out, but if you do, let me know how it works. Now, of course, there was also the release of GNOME 44 this week with a bunch of quality of life improvements. I made a dedicated video on YouTube. It's also on PeerTube and on Odyssey if you want. Uh, so you can go watch it to know all the details about everything that changed. 
Uh, here is a very quick recap. Uh, the quick settings have been made more legible and more descriptive with a title and a subtitle. So you know what the quick setting does and what it's currently connected to or the setting it's set to. Uh, you now have support for background applications. They will be displayed in a small section in the quick settings as well in the quick settings menu which means that you can see what is running in the background, but it's not a replacement for the system tray icons yet because you cannot raise one of these windows by clicking on the background app and you also cannot access its context menu. So it's very basic support. I hope they evolve it into a notification tray icon competitor, but for now it's not. You also get the thumbnails in the file picker. Finally, you can see the image thumbnails when you're trying to select a file on GNOME, something that has been missing for 14 years or more. Uh, now it's finally there. Uh, you can also pick uh, the option to only view free and open source software in GNOME software, which is nice. And performance has been improved in uh, category pages. Uh, they took ages to load before because icons were really slow to load. And uh, now it's way better structured, so category pages will display faster. You have the option to disable overlay scroll bars or even the mouse pointer acceleration in the settings, which is cool. And the settings themselves have been redesigned as usual as with every release. There's at least one or two settings pages that get the redesign treatment. This time it's the accessibility settings, uh, the mouse and touchpad settings, which gain a few interactive videos like you hover over a setting and it's going to show you how it works so you know what you're picking. For example, uh, if you're using a touchpad, edge scrolling or two-finger scrolling will be demonstrated with really quick symbolic videos. And same goes for normal scrolling or natural scrolling on a touchpad or a mouse. You'll see small videos that let you know how well it works. I think it's good. You also get redesigned sound preferences, which honestly does not change all that much how you're going to use your sound outputs or inputs. You can configure WireGuard VPNs uh, natively. You can share your Wi-Fi password using a QR code. And most of the applications are now fully ported to GDK4, except for GNOME boxes, which seems to be the last holdout. Uh, they all received some small updates as well in terms of UI, in terms of small added features. There's nothing groundbreaking, but it's a really good release. And what's interesting is that it actually moves towards satisfying the users and what users have been asking for, which is cool. So yes, I like it. Uh, I'll be using it when I get the update to Fedora 38, probably next month. And uh, yeah, uh, I'll wait until then. Now, as with the release of GNOME 44, there's also a blog post from Endless OS, which detailed their contributions to the new version. And they seem to be heavy contributors uh, to, to most of those features. Uh, they contributed to the improvements to GNOME software, including bug fixes in how it handles flatpacks and the improved performance. They contributed the improvements to the quick settings and the handling of flatpak background apps. And they also worked on glib, which is one of the main background libraries, uh, backend libraries for GNOME. And they also worked on the initial GNOME setup to improve a few things. So yeah, it looks like they, they employ a lot of the most prolific developers that work on GNOME. And it's, it's cool to know that. I mean, it, it's nice. I think they, they, Obviously, they do it to promote their own work and the fact that, hey, look, we're a major player uh, for, for GNOME, uh, for Linux. But in the end, it's still cool to highlight what they've been working on and what they helped create. So that's nice. Now, there's also an interesting thing. Uh, if you follow my YouTube channel, you know that Tuxedo is one of my main sponsors. 
but they're also a sponsor because I really think their products are really cool. Uh, they make laptops and desktops that run Linux out of the box, basically. And if you if you use them, you know that they make a piece of software called Tuxedo Control Center, and they just released a new update for it, uh, which really lets you configure a lot more things. Uh, this little app previously was only for performance profiles, basically, and also for their external water cooling solution for the laptops that support it. But basically, it was mainly used for power profiles. You could use the ones that they had preset or create your own and save them. Uh, but they now let you control a lot more things related to your computers. And what's interesting is that this application, of course, is designed to run on Tuxedo laptops and desktops. But if you have a computer from a manufacturer that uses the same kind of chassis, like Slimbook, for example, or certain System76 devices, you can also install Tuxedo Control Center on there, and it's gonna run, and it's gonna work, which is cool. So what they added this time is uh, support for managing the keyboard's backlight. This has been a complaint I had in most of the reviews I made uh, for Tuxedo's laptops that had per-key uh, per RGB on the keyboard. You had no native way to handle it using the pre-installed distro they shipped. Uh, it, it was basically turning on or off and uh, it was just one color and you had control over how much, how much power the backlight was using, basically how bright it was, but that's it. Uh, now you can use the Tuxedo Control Center to configure that way more, which is really cool. Uh, it was missing from a lot of their devices, and now you can do it, uh, which is really nice. You also get access to the webcam settings, uh, which is also interesting, uh, because to my knowledge, they're the only manufacturer that gives you a, an integrated control for that. Uh, so you can configure exposition, white balance, contrast, uh, compensation for, uh, back, uh, for backlights, which means that if you're standing with your back to a very bright window, you can reduce how much light this, this gives and you can improve basically everything on how it looks and tweak it. And you can also change the resolution. It's nice to make sure that you look at least decent on your video calls, which is good because most laptop webcams are not fantastic on virtually any laptop ever, maybe except for the most recent MacBooks. So having more control over that it will make sure that you're at least look like a human being and that you're visible, which is cool. Uh, and they also added uh, on the Tuxedo Control Center, they added support for their T-O-M-T-E tools or Tomta. I don't really know how you're supposed to pronounce it. Uh, basically, Tomta is a background daemon that lets you check for modules, drivers, add grub entries, basically make sure that the laptop you're using is also using all the correct modules that it needs to run Linux well, to run everything perfectly, basically, to support all the hardware, all the hardware features, all the function keys, everything. Uh, it's, it's a daemon that runs automatically on, their, on the distro they ship. And before you could not really manage it uh, unless you were using the command line. And now you have a graphical tool that lets you pick the various packages you're okay to install or to update, which is really nice. Uh, and they also now let you export and import custom power profiles which is interesting because if you want to restore your laptop and you crafted the perfect equilibrium between battery life and performance, now you can just restore it instead of uh, just having to recreate it. Now, as I said, this app will run on any Tuxedo device and they offer packages for Debian-based distros because the distro they offer on their device is Debian-based. 
but also someone packaged it for Fedora through a copper repo, because it's fully open source, the code is available on GitHub, you can download it, compile it for any distro, but now there's a copper repo uh, for Fedora, I'm pretty sure you can find it in the AUR as well, if you prefer to install Arch-based distros on your Tuxedo laptops, which is cool. And as I said, if you have a Slimbook device that has the equivalent uh, on Tuxedo, because they use the same chassis, they just change the components they decide to ship in, they change the distro, they don't have the same quality insurance procedures, the same options, but they tend to use the same Tongfeng or Clevo chassis that they upgrade and, and integrate themselves. Like they have the chassis, they have the pieces, but they put it, they put it together themselves and they test it themselves. So if you have a Slimbook device that has an equivalent uh, from Tuxedo, you can also probably install the Tuxedo control center on it and use it to manage your power profiles and use it to manage the modules and everything. It's, it's interesting, basically. It's very interesting. And it's a good tool uh, that I generally really enjoy using uh, on my Tuxedo laptop. So something that I also missed a while ago, uh, they, Tuxedo still, uh, released a big update to the distro that they pre-installed on their devices. Uh, it's called Tuxedo OS, and yes, it is pre-installed on the laptops and desktops you buy from Tuxedo, although you can pick from other from a selection of other distros if you prefer, but you can also just download it yourself and install it on any device, even if it's not a Tuxedo laptop or desktop. It's just like Pop! OS for System76, basically. Uh, it is designed to run on System76's devices, but you can still download it and install it on any other computer. What's interesting about Tuxedo OS is that while it's based on Kubuntu, it is a rolling release, which means that you don't have to wait for Ubuntu to validate packages. You don't have to wait six months to get the latest and greatest. Every time there's a new update to something crucial or interesting, Tuxedo will test it on their own devices at least, and they will release it to the distro, which means yeah, it's a rolling release. So for now, Tuxedo OS 2, it, it uses the Linux kernel version 6.1. It uses Plasma 5.27. When to get all of that, you would have to wait uh, for the new release of Ubuntu next month, uh, well, of Kubuntu at least, Kubuntu 23.04. You already have all of that on uh, on Tuxedo OS, which is nice. It's a, it's a pretty cool distro. And honestly, if you want a Debian-based KD distribution, but you don't really want to have either an LTS base, which is too old, or you don't want to have to wait six months to get updates, then I think Tuxedo OS is a really good choice because you get the familiarity of Debian packaging and an Ubuntu-based distro, but you also get the latest releases of KDE, the kernel, the Mesa stack. It's, it's the best of both worlds. And honestly, it's the KDE distro I would recommend you use if you're looking for one these days which I know Tuxedo is a sponsor of the YouTube channel. It might seem like I only talk about this because I'm sponsored, but they don't sponsor this podcast at all. And I really legitimately think Tuxedo OS is a really great option. And I encourage you to try it out and, uh, and give me your feedback because it's an interesting one. Now, still on the hardware front, uh, we have Framework. Uh, you know, the, probably know already the company. It makes the ultra repairable, ultra modular framework laptop. But they only had really one device, the 13-inch. And now they announced a few more things. First, for that 13-inch model, you will now be able to get 13th gen Intel boards and new 7000 series Ryzen AMD boards. So you can upgrade your laptop without buying a new one. You just replace the motherboard and you can reuse the older motherboard using 
they, they have cases that you can slot it in to make a, a small desktop PC, for example. So that, that's kind of the purpose of this laptop. You swap out the motherboards uh, to keep the chassis, the screen, the keyboard, and so you don't have to rebuy everything all the time. Uh, what's more interesting, though, is that they announced the Framework 16, which is a brand new device, 16 inches, of course, and it will have upgradable graphics this time. Not only the upgradable main board, but also upgradable GPU, which is very interesting if they manage to pull it off. So it will have more expansion slots than the 13-inch, uh, with six slots to, to slide in these little modules that give you various ports. Uh, although this time the headphone jack will be using one of these modules. It's not installed natively on the laptop. You will have to use one of your six uh, modules uh, to, to add a headphone jack. But it also means that if you never use the headphone jack on your laptop, you don't have to have space taken up by it, which is okay. Uh, they will also have hot swappable keyboard modules with the ability to add a numpad on the fly, for example, replace the keyboard with potential third-party other modules. You will have the ability to move the touchpad to the right, to the left, or center it, uh, with the plates on the sides being removable as well. And it will have a PCI port to connect GPUs or other peripherals that have not been announced yet at the back of the laptop. Now, it seems to be just a prototype yet. No one really got to touch it or use it. They just talked about it and showed it, but that's about it. And uh, you don't really know what kind of GPUs they'll offer, what performance level they will offer, which manufacturers, AMD, Intel, Nvidia, we don't know. And we don't know how you'll be able to buy those GPUs. Will Framework be the sole provider or will there be third-party modules? We don't really know, but it's a very interesting concept and I really hope they can achieve it. And they're also open sourcing a bunch of stuff and parts of the laptop, like the keyboard firmware, uh, the input modules designs, the expansion bay modules for the GPUs and the other PCI peripherals you can slot in that new 16-inch device, or even the expansion cards designs. And I really like what they're doing. I hope they can achieve this vision, this swappable GPU vision, and I also hope it will support Linux properly, because honestly, a fully upgradable 16-inch laptop that looks relatively thin and light, not the thinnest and lightest, but still thin and light and portable, that can have a GPU if you need one, uh, if it can support an NVIDIA GPU, uh, so I can run DaVinci Resolve on that laptop, this would be my dream machine, if it supports Linux correctly. So I'll be following this with the greatest of interest. Now let's talk about Snap packages. It looks like Ubuntu wants some help to test their Steam Snap. Uh, they made it clear that they see this Snap package as the future for games on Ubuntu. This is where they're investing their time and support. And honestly, the Snap packaging format or, or Flatpak makes real good sense uh, for this kind of stuff because Steam depends on Vulkan, it depends on various older 32-bit libraries, on 64-bit stuff, and maintaining all of that in an older Debian packaging system or an RPM-based system isn't easy and it kind of holds distributions back, so having a, a containerized, all-in-one packaging format that can handle it makes sense, whether it's a snap or a flat pack. And so Ubuntu said that they poured a lot of work, a lot of work into their uh, Steam snap to solve the issues, to ensure it works well, but their own testing is absolutely not enough. It, there's no way with a an inside team you can test every game that every library is correctly packaged and works well for every title. 
So now they want people to provide game reports for their favorite games and to ensure that this Steam Snap works as well as possible. So if you run Ubuntu, if you're not against Snap packages and you want to help the Ubuntu team test it out, uh, you'll need to install the Snap package from the candidate channel and then you'll need to run two commands uh, in the command line in the terminal to run a hardware observer and a system observer. Uh, don't worry, these only collect information about your systems, but they're not shared unless you actually decide to manually send uh, your game report. So it's not like they're going to spy on you or anything. So you can just run your game after that. And once you're done, you can run another command to submit that game report. Uh, it will give you access to a form in a web browser with a bunch of information pre-filled thanks to that hardware observer and system observer. You can fix those informations if they're incorrect and you can just give your feedback and your experience on what worked, what didn't work. And using the collected data, which is obviously opt-in since you have to run the commands manually yourself, and using what you said, they'll try and see if it's an issue with the game or an issue with their snap package and they'll be able to improve it and fix it. Honestly, the process seems cumbersome. Uh, you have to switch your Steam Snap to another channel, which is relatively easy to do, but then you have to run multiple commands for each game you want to test. So I doubt that they'll see thousands or, or tens of thousands of game reports, unless they have a very, very dedicated base of uh, Steam Snap testers. I, I would be surprised. The process is cumbersome. I think they really should have made it way easier, uh, maybe automated as much as possible. But yeah, honestly, if you like snaps or if you don't have anything against them, you might as well help Ubuntu make them better because I'm sure that all the insights learned from these game reports will also be applicable in parts to other snap packages. So it might just make the packaging format better for everyone, every app, not just Steam. So now just a small tidbit of information and, and some kind of like post-purchase reassurance or gloating, uh, but it's interesting. It looks like one of the main creators of Unix, Ken Thompson, uh, decided to leave uh, one of the last commercial Unix systems, which is macOS. Uh, he's moving to Linux. He said that he was an Apple user for most of his life because he was kind of born into it and because it was Unix, but he has become depressed with what Apple is doing to their OS, qualifying it with the term atrocious, which I just cannot disagree with. Like Mac OS is an abomination in terms of usability, unless you know it and you're used to it. You have to learn keyboard shortcuts to maximize applications. Like what, what? It's stupid. This OS is stupid in terms of usability. So I cannot agree more. Uh, Ken Thompson then said that he was okay with throwing away all the time and the money he invested into Apple gear and services, and that he's moving to Linux, specifically Raspbian, which is the Debian port for the Raspberry Pi. And it's just one person, who cares, but it's also the father of Unix. Uh, it's a person that should theoretically be attached to using a Unix system, a true Unix system, like macOS is. Linux isn't a true Unix system, it's it's Unix compatible. Uh, so it's interesting to see because, yeah, first it means that I'm not the only one to find macOS absolutely terrible in terms of usability and features and being locked down. But it also means that, yeah, people used to Unix have truly moved on to Linux. And that kind of reinforces the latest video that I made about this topic, which was called How Linux Ate Unix, which is debatable, did they really eat it or not, but that's not the point. It was just an interesting little nugget of information.
Now, something less fun and more worrying. Uh, it seems like there's a new vulnerability for a lot of screenshot tools that let you crop uh, visuals, crop screenshots, specifically for the PNG format. The, the main offender seems to be Android, but it also seems to affect the Windows uh, snipping tool. And basically what's happening is that you use the cropping feature on, for example, a Google Pixel or some non-Pixel phones or the Windows snipping tool. And your goal is to mask some data from the image to only show stuff that you're okay with showing. And technically, you should save an image that only contains the, the, the things that's left after you crop. But that's not what's happening with the PNG format in these implementations. A lot of the data of the original image is still kept in the file and is very easy to recover. It just does not delete the information that the crop removed, which means that if you, for example, shared screenshots of, I don't know, your banking app or emails or anything really like sensible, the, the data you thought you removed might still be accessible. Uh, anyone might still be able to just regenerate the full image from it and see everything you cropped out, including social security numbers or, or bank numbers or, ba or, or, I don't know, like payment card details, anything, email addresses. It's terrible. This vulnerability has been patched in March's Android update, which is nice, but all screenshots cropped before that date can still be uncropped. And the issue appeared in Android 10, so it's a long, long period. Now, depending on where you shared these screenshots, some applications or services would have removed all the extra data that is not useful. But some services like Discord, for example, don't do that. So if you shared a lot of personal screenshots on Discord, hoping that you didn't share something that was like sensible, personal, a password, a number or of any sort, well, you might just want to go back and delete all of those before anyone can just recover the data in it because it's it's a terrible, terrible problem. And it affects a lot of devices. They gave it the adorable nickname of Acropolypse uh, because crop and apocalypse. And it affects not only Google Pixel users mainly, but also some non-Pixel Android phones, some custom ROMs, the Windows snipping tool from Windows 10 and 11, I think. It's only for PNG screenshots. If your screenshots are in JPEGs, there's no problem. JPEG just deletes everything that's not needed. But PNG uses some kind of markup language or metadata thing to keep some of that data just in case. And it's dumb. So yeah, basically the implementations that were written are stupid and insecure. So be aware of that. If you didn't get an update, uh, the latest security update for Android, be very wary of uh, what screenshots you share, how you crop them. Uh, tr try to be as secure as possible. Okay, and let's move on to the gaming news. Uh, first, we're going to talk about emulation. If you like emulating older games on your Linux devices, there's Emulation Station, which got a new release, version 2.0, which is an enormous, massive, massive release. It supports a ton more devices from Commodore, from Amiga, from Android, well, a ton of Android games, uh, games that ran on older Apple computers. They support games that ran on arcade, Atari machines, on old Nintendo consoles, and a lot more. They have a new theming engine for the app. 
they have a rewritten rendering engine that uses shaders, they now support vertical screens, they have way better performance and a lot lot more like the, the, the release notes are so long I just cannot cover everything here, but just know that it's a fantastic way to get all your emulators and games in a single interface, it supports Linux and the Steam Deck as well, so it's well worth a shot. Now there's also a change planned for the AMD drivers for Linux that should improve the experience on recent AMD APUs, including the Van Gogh architecture, which notably is used by the Steam Deck. So there's a new interface in those drivers that let the OS adjust and set thermal throttling, uh, which lets temperatures be read in milli-degrees Celsius, which means that you can adjust throttling a lot more precisely with very minute variations of temperature, so you can squeeze every single bit of performance you want out of these chips. Now, the fixes also include stuff for FreeSync, uh, they, it adds USB 4 support, a lot more, uh, and these new changes are just in the driver. The various distros and operating systems will need to be updated to support all of these features and take advantage of them, but I would expect SteamOS at least to really adopt this new interface and use it to make sure that the Steam Deck is even better at handling demanding games without throttling too soon. Like if you can adjust your throttling by milli degrees, then you're, you're getting very, very precise. Instead of saying, oh, we reached, I don't know, 85 degrees, maybe it's less for a handheld, maybe it's like 80, uh, we reached 80 degrees, we're gonna start throttling the CPU to bring that temp down. You could say, what's really interesting is that at 81.7, we're gonna start throttling and we'll keep throttling at, I don't know, uh, we're gonna lower it at 1.4 gigahertz until we reach 80, where we're gonna throttle it at two gigahertz, but then at 80.2, we're gonna throttle it at 1.9. You can be very, very precise. It's super interesting. And it's basically going to improve like every single AMD APU. But what's really beneficial is on the Steam Deck, of course. Now, we also got a release of Wine, uh, Wine 8.4, which is the first version to include the initial steps of the Wayland driver that will enable Wine and probably in the future Proton to run Windows titles as native Wayland apps instead of using X Wayland, which has a small performance overhead. So running all of that as native Wayland will be better for everyone. Uh, so that's nice to see those first steps. It's still not there. You still cannot run Proton or Wine as a native Wayland uh, application, but it's the first steps. And you also get fixes for Thief, the dark project, for Hard Truck 2, King of the Road, whatever that is, for the Amazon Games clients, uh, for Spore, for Crisis 2, Maximum Edition, or for StarCraft Remastered. And finally, we have another AMD-related thing. Uh, they unveiled a few details about FSR 3, which is their super sampling technology. Uh, you already know what it is for FSR, FSR 2. It basically lets you run and render a game at a lower resolution, but upscale this output to make it look like, for example, it's 4K. You're rendering the game at 1080p, but it looks like it's 4K with very minimal compression or degradation of the image. And with FSR 3, they're now introducing interpolated frames that apparently lets them get a two times frame rate boost. Uh, basically what it does is it's generating frames in between the ones that are actually rendered. It's interpolating frames from the ones that have been rendered to slot them in. 
so the game could run at 30 FPS and be rendered at 30 FPS using less power, less graphics, so it can run on, on low-end devices, but it will appear to run at 60 FPS because every other frame is being guessed by the algorithm and generated. Of course, this introduces latency because these frames are not really rendered, they don't reflect what you're doing, uh, it's just an algorithm guessing what would be displayed depending on the direction, for example, the camera is moving or, or how, how you move around, what you're looking at, uh, what's happening in the background, what's being generated. So it's just guessing at what should happen and so it's not reacting to your input in that frame because it's not a really rendered frame. But apparently it's not super noticeable and it looks like an interesting technology. It's open source and the Fidelity FX SDK that gives developers access to that technology is also open source. And I think it will be really, really cool because again, for something like the Steam Deck or a, or a laptop that doesn't have that much performance, you can just render everything at 30 FPS, which means that you could, for example, go up in terms of graphics quality. And then FSR takes the burden of making sure that everything is still smooth or at least smoother than 30 FPS. And if it's scalable, for example, to reach 40 FPS, it would mean you don't have that much latency added because you're not generating one frame for every real frame, you're generating one frame for every three real frames, which would be like maybe less noticeable. So it looks like a very interesting technology and I hope we'll see it implemented natively in GameScope on SteamOS and stuff like that to have these tools uh, available for every game, basically. So I think it's time we stop there. We covered a lot of stuff. So as always, if you want more details about any specific topic, there's a link in the show notes. If you want to help support this show, there are also links in the show notes for Patreon, PayPal, and now LiberaPay, uh, which I just created the account for. So if you prefer using that, it's available. And as always, thank you all for listening. Thank you for supporting the show. And I guess you will hear me in the next one. Bye.